Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and entering the dude's den. Look, we know there are more men in public office than women. That's not news. But let me read you a few numbers about just how bad it is. Only around 30% of Canadian MPs are women, according to a recent ranking by the Interparliamentary Union of Women in Politics. That puts us 59th in the world. And if you look at the provincial and territorial legislatures, it's just as bleak. In Newfoundland and Labrador, it's 25%. In New Brunswick, it's 27%. And there are a few that are doing better, 43% in Quebec, 41% in BC, and Northwest Territories is the only one that actually achieves gender parity. But we still only have exactly one woman leading a province, and just one leading a territory. And I'll remind you that Canadians have never voted in a woman prime minister. We've been talking about this forever. So in 2022, why do we still have so far to go to achieve gender equality in elected office? In this episode, I'm speaking to three women who hold or have held public office to try to answer this question. This panel was recorded as part of a book launch for former NDP MP Peggy Nash's new book, Women Winning Office. The event was organized by her publisher, Between the Lines. I was also joined by Leah Gazan, the NDP MP for Winnipeg Centre, and Andrea Reimer, who was voted into Vancouver City Council three times and is currently an adjunct professor at UBC. These are three badass women with great political careers and stories to tell. Let's get into it. I want to complicate matters and ask a spicy first question, which is who is to blame for the lack of women in politics? 
Peggy, why don't you go first? Sure. I think it depends on the level of government, but I will speak to provincial, federal, and territorial governments. And I think at that level, I would say mainly political parties, because if and when political parties make the decision that they want a majority of their candidates to be women or people who identify as women, if they want a large number of black, racialized, indigenous, queer candidates, they can do that through going out and recruiting possible candidates long before an election. I think municipal politics is a little bit different. You might have coalitions or movements, but not official parties. But I think there is a similar recruiting process. And there's this vision, a stereotypic old vision of who is electable and what a traditional politician looks like. I think the three of us broke those molds in our own way. I think there's lots of women getting elected now who are breaking those molds, but we need to do much better. And just getting women elected is not the whole story. You have to support them and help them to succeed so that they don't end up getting discouraged and then leaving in frustration. So I think political parties can play the biggest role here. Leah, do you agree? Are parties holding back increasing gender diversity of Canadian politics? Well, I think that's certainly one factor. I mean, it's, you know, one thing to recruit people, but it's another thing to run people in winnable ridings. You know, not all ridings are winnable. We know that women are most often run in ridings that aren't winnable. Um, I do think political parties do play a role, but I also think it's the institution itself. You know, I think it's no secret that, you know, the House of Commons is like the eye of the colonial storm. And, you know, when you're breaking down those walls, particularly as an Indigenous uh, person, uh, you know, we have a long way to go. Riddled with misogyny, lots of racism still, and still rooted in colonial values that were designed to exclude and, you know, certainly uh, exclude to the point of places where we know the Indian Act was established and put into policy and, you know, Indigenous people, again, weren't even part of the system, couldn't even participate in the system uh, until 1960, uh, never mind uh, women. It's one thing to have people in there. It's another thing to have people go in there and make sure it's safe and that it's one thing to be a face, but then if you're going to have diversity, then you have to open up the door for diverse perspectives. And certainly um, uh, being elected for the last three years, it's been a journey. It's the greatest honor of my life, but uh, it is a struggle. Andrea, who do you blame for the lack of women in Canadian politics? Oh, you know, I think there's a whole host of people. When I was elected to um, local government, I did a lot of work around gender inclusion, but also particularly the inclusion of women and girls. I remember uh, particularly around a sporting event, we had the FIFA Women's World Cup and people were asked, like saying like, at the time it was around pay equity and um, turf versus grass. These are, sorry, I feel like I've already like dove into the literal weeds here, but the the issues were the media would ask me about it. And I'm like, why do you think it's any easier for women in sports than in politics or journalism for that matter? Right. So it's not that women in politics face anything worse than women in journalism. I get we could 
spill some tea on that, I'm sure, <laughs> and, and in other aspects of life. Um, but in politics, it's public, right? So you're in this fishbowl and people are watching you. And so it becomes latent and obvious in ways that I'm not sure it is so much in other areas. And then there's like the um, integrity of it, right? We're talking about representation, like who is sitting at the table making the laws to make more room for all of us. And if their names are Stephen, Paul, and Tim, I mean, do the four of us really feel like they're closely paying attention to the issues that might be barriers for us out in the world outside of politics? So I think all of us bear some responsibility in it. Um, and the systemic barriers are the ones that I think are both the most latent and the hardest ones to get into. I think about I mean, I've done a lot of recruiting. I used to work in the back rooms of the Green Party, so recruited a lot of candidates to run for office. Um, I ended up running myself because at some point you lack personal integrity if you've asked several hundred people to run and someone asks you to run and you're like, oh no, I could never do that. Um, but I, I'm so struck by women don't get the resume to run for office because people don't like they don't get asked to sit on boards they don't get asked to be the treasurer they don't get or they do a ton of volunteer work with no title attached to it so then because they don't have the resume it's a barrier to them running for office and it becomes this kind of like treadmill i've seen a lot more women getting um brought in on boards for example like it it stands out if your board is like two women and ten men these days but I, I was just in a board meeting yesterday where we spent two hours talking about EDI. And then right after that, appointed people to two committees. One was finance related. One was social justice issues related. The finance one was 75% men and the social justice one was 100% women, right? And so it's that kind of systemic bias that creates ultimately barriers for women to develop the resumes and connections and networks that they need to successfully fight the societal barriers that they're going to face outside of these organizations when they're running in an election in their community. You've all sort of identified certain barriers, and I wondered if I could <laughs> prod each of you to share an example of a struggle with a barrier to entry to politics that you had to face when you were running for office or even thinking about running for office. Peggy? You know, I, I come from a working class background and, um, you know, you think of politics and, and people who get elected as the professional class, as the lawyers and the business owners and people that our family wasn't. So I think um, not really seeing enough role models of, of working people or knowing uh, role models who were working people who got elected and then internalizing a lot of uh, self-doubt. Well, who am I? Could I ever run for office? I, I don't know that I have the qualifications. And now I look back on that thinking and I... I, if I was recruiting me at the time, I would say, are you crazy? You've done all these things. And if I recruit someone else, say from the labor movement or a community leader, you know, those are impressive credentials that really help train you for politics because it's about connecting with people, organizing people. And I can speak for the labor movement. You learn so many skills in terms of negotiation, sharing meetings, public speaking, how things get passed. Maybe it's motions or decisions of various kinds. But parliament isn't that dissimilar. 
And I think what was the biggest barrier for me was self-doubt. And I think similarly to Andrea, I had done a lot of women's leadership training, especially in my union. And I kept encouraging women to run for leadership positions in the union and also to run for elected office. And people said to me, well, why don't you do it? And so I really had to, to kind of put up or shut up. Yeah. Uh, and why, why shouldn't I do it? And it was not something I ever thought I would do in my life. It was frightening. I remember saying to a friend when I decided to run, it was like I had just jumped off a cliff because I didn't know the process well enough. I didn't know how you become a nominated candidate, what the steps were. So it's that sense of being an outsider and not knowing how things work that for me was the biggest barrier. Leah, do you agree that often it might be women holding <laughs> the gender diversity of Canadian politics from improving? Well, you know, it's one thing being a woman in that place, which is difficult. I mean, I joke and I call the House of Commons the dude's den. Going back into the dude's den, because it really, I mean, I was sitting in the house one day and they were debating a motion, you know, about concerns they had about white males in academia, you know, losing the best and the brightest from affirmative action policies uh, to ensure diversity. I mean, like they, they were debating this in the house and I was laughing hysterically and I had to remove myself as a former academic. I knew one thing we don't have to fight for is keeping white males in power. But being a woman in there is hard. Being an Indigenous woman is really hard because, of course, not only do you have to deal with all the misogyny and sexism of that place and the mansplaining, it's uh, it's a profession uh, in politics, but you're also constantly dealing with racism, stereotypes and stigmatization where people want to see you a certain way, uh, particularly somebody like me who um, is a longtime advocate uh, I've been on the front lines of a lot of movements, climate justice movements, uh, you know, fighting to see a, an end to violence against Indigenous women and girls, human rights matters. And so you're radicalized. The fact that you stand up for your human rights, human rights that most Canadians are afforded, Indigenous people are not, you go in that place and you're radicalized. So it's been a journey for me. I've been there for three years I've made a, a point of staying true to my values because if I'm not there representing my values, fighting for the human rights of all people, including Indigenous people, Palestinian people, what are they going to be fighting for there in there and who's going to take that seat? So it's difficult. I'm not going to say it's not. We've heard lots of stories, but it's difficult, but it's a privilege at the same time because I do feel, even though it's hard, it is very hard, that I am making a difference, that I'm impacting discussions, that I might be impacting the way people see the world. Even in committees, I'm in the uh, status of women committee with all these, with women, all women from different political parties. And we actually have really good critical discussions about the world and ideas. And, and I think that matters. So it's difficult, but uh, do feel that, uh, you know, representation does matter. Andrea, jump in here. What sort of barriers to entry did you personally face when you were running or thinking about running? 
Yeah, well, I don't know that it reflects super well on me to disclose this, but I kind of ran, I mean, not entirely by accident, but I definitely won by accident. So I think if someone would have told me I had a chance of winning, or if I would have understood that, I really can't imagine that I would ever have run. Um, I was 29. I had a four-year-old at home. I had just started a new job running the largest membership-based environmental organization in Canada. So obviously wasn't looking for another job on top of that. But I think most critically, I was a woman, ambiguous ethnic identity. Um, Turns out I'm adopted. So, you know, people always ask me, where am I from? It turns out I'm Indigenous, but I did not know that at the time. I'd been street involved, a drug user, sex worker, heavily involved in advocacy. And here's the capper. I was running with the Green Party in 2002. So the chances of me winning seemed, you know, pretty impossible. Um, But I was trying to prove a point to the party at the time, which was I'd run the 2001 election campaign because, I mean, I believe strongly in the values and the policies of the party of the day. And I saw my role as working behind the scenes. I was a community organizer. That's where I felt like I could have the most effort. The party at the time, and I think still in some places, was opposed to knocking on doors because it felt that it was invasive in the in people's lives. And I was like, you can't win if you don't make eye contact and talk to people. Like that's where you win hearts and minds. Anyway, um, so we knocked on 20,000 doors. And the point was to say we could do better that way than we would if we didn't knock on doors. And we did do better. We won. I really... I don't know. I think a lot of what Leah says really resonates with me. Like it was definitely an alien environment, even the little school board. I mean, council was another jump again for me. But um, we're talking a lot about the barriers to getting elected, but the barriers to being elected, um, like once you cross that and being effective elected are equally challenging. I want to pick up on a couple of things Leah said around that. Um, It's around that issue of something we haven't named yet. There's a big difference between women and feminists. So this idea that electing women is electing feminists is not, and it took me quite a bit of time to figure that out. Um, I, I chaired the women's campaign school and, you know, didn't totally understand that, that, that while it's a great virtue to want to be multipartisan, the reality is you're electing people that are just as hostile to feminism as men of your own party might be. So there was a point where I was on city council and there were five women elected and five feminists. Those were not the same people, right? So I think that's something we really have to think about. The other thing, we now have eight women elected on city council, but they're all white um, and they bring a perspective that is not as inclusive of a council that had less women on it um, in terms of understanding intersectional feminism. And so it's not so simple, right? It's quite a complex issue once you start diving into it. It's interesting because as you all have sort of indicated throughout this conversation, it's a holistic problem that doesn't just exist on election day, right? Like in the past several years, we've seen really strong, inspiring female politicians leave Canadian politics. I'm thinking of Momolak specifically. We've also seen just the amount of unfair vitriol female politicians face, everyone from Catherine McKenna to Michelle Rempel. And then we're, we're seeing the struggle of female leaders to stay in leadership positions in the party. I'm thinking of Andrea Horwath at the Ontario NDP who just resigned, or Kathleen Wynne, also Ontario Liberals who had to resign after just the sheer amount of hate they both get. And I know all of you on this panel have faced various 
struggles in that regard. So if we succeed in bringing women into the political system, how do we help them stay there? Like, what are the concrete steps we need to do to support them, which is something you've all addressed in this conversation, too? You know, it's complex. And I do just want to quickly pick up on a point Andrea raised about, you know, who we see as leaders, and it does have to do with power. And, you know, I think that parties can have women leaders when it doesn't look like the party is going to be in government. But as soon as it looks like there's a chance at getting power, the field gets very crowded and women tend to get squeezed out. I mean, I remember vividly after Jack Layton's death, it was a crowded field to replace him because we were official opposition. And there was the thinking that maybe we could make government in the next election. And I was told, you know, we tried a woman, this isn't the time for a woman, as though you get one crack at it. I mean, we'd actually had a couple of of women leaders. I mean, you see that in the current leadership at the provinces and territories today. And you also see that in that it's rare, and I think maybe never have we reelected a woman premier. So these are difficult positions. And I think the leader is, is just uh, a symptom, if you will, of the uh, situation of others in politics. And it's like the media as well. And someone else mentioned sports. I think Andrea mentioned sports, where if you stick your head above the parapet, there's always a lot of people waiting to shoot at you. And how dare you? How dare you assume that power? So, you know, I talk about this a lot in my book where candidates have faced racism, sexism, Islamophobia, homophobia. And, you know, it's partly, I think, the way you deal with it is anticipating it. So to expect that you're going to sail through and there won't be this kind of attack, I think, is, is unrealistic. But some face it much more than others. So I think preparing for it, preparing your team for it, and uh, having a number of options for how you're going to deal with it. So for me, and I was elected before really the intensity of social media attacks that there is today, but the way we dealt with it, I would send out messages on social media, but I didn't spend a lot of time reading social media or engaging with it. My team would do that so that I didn't have to kind of ingest the negativity because I just felt that was unhealthy for me. Others decide they want to engage in that way. They will engage, not with trolls, but, you know, with, with people who might just disagree. And I'm happy to engage with people who disagree, but I'm not happy to engage with hate and refuse to do it. So I think there are strategies, but the biggest strategy is just to have better representation so it becomes normalized. Is it um, Finland today where there are five, a coalition of five parties and they are all headed by women? So I think just having more, better representation is one way that you can tend to reduce the amount of backlash. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. What's the role of men in achieving critical mass of gender and racialized diversity in the Canadian political system? This has been asked by, by a few listeners. Well, I think it's about giving up place and privilege. One of the things that I shared with Peggy in the book is that when I was asked to run, I decided to do that. I actually had to run against a powerful, um, established white male. When I told people I was running, they're like, oh, that's great, you know, and nobody thought I could do it. But I did. I did. I, I, I won my nomination handily. And then I had to take down another male uh, in the election. But I think if we really want to see systems change, that sometimes people need to give up that privilege in place to say, maybe there's a lot of my voice uh, in the House of Commons or on city council or in the province. Maybe I need to give up my space and place and power for somebody else to run. So I think it's about giving up privilege. You know, we often talk about equality on on a number of fronts, but I think the greatest stall to that is that in order to have true equality and equity, people will have to give up some of their privilege to make sure everybody has what they need. Leah, can I ask you how they do that? Like physically do that? Well, they withdraw themselves. If you look around the House of Commons, there's not a lot of women. And if you look at just Indigenous people in the House of Commons, there's 10 out of the 338. And if you break that down for Indigenous women, it's like, I think, five uh, with diverse perspectives. Uh, you know, like Andrea said, you know, um, you know, we come from diverse backgrounds. We have diverse uh, opinions, but there's five. So why is that? You know, and, and I think sometimes it's looking around the room and giving up um, space and place to make sure that the representation is diverse. Parties need to say, is there diversity here? Uh, do we have diversity in staffing? Are we electing diverse uh, representatives across the board? And if we're not, then people have to start giving up their place and, and, and privilege. I don't think we're there yet. I think we're moving towards that. I've certainly seen examples in, in my own uh, party, in my own caucus of, of people saying, hey, I'm going to step aside because we're not rep representing. And, and that's powerful. That's powerful. Uh, and it's possible, but we still need that to happen. Yeah, it's almost like maybe the political system should prioritize representation and actually follow through. Um, Andrea. In a representative democracy, what a crazy concept, right? <laughs> Who knew? Yeah, well, so I can give you a couple, maybe practical examples. So if people are listening and they're thinking about how do I action this, maybe this will speak to you a bit. So we did um, a big update on the women's equity strategy in Vancouver. The first one was done in 2005, very different time than 2018. Um, you know, I, I think to speak well of it, they exponentially increased expectations of action, which I think was positive and intersectionality. Anyway, I worked my butt off on this thing. It took me 
eight years just to get a majority of council to agree to action it. It was always like, that's important, but the next thing. And so finally there was this window, I won't bore you with the details, but suffice it to say, Overton window opened. And I was like, we're going to shove as much policy as we can through that. So update strategy, um, we put a mandatory um, minimum of uh, 50% women on every advisory board, agency, commission, et cetera. Um, and also did a, a gender budget audit. So the, the equity strategy is coming to council. And, you know, everyone just assumes I'm going to move it because I've been working my butt off on this thing for 10 years. And at the last minute, like, I mean, really the last minute, I sent a note to the mayor who was a man. So we've only ever had men. I feel like that goes without saying um, and said, I really need you to move this. So his response was, oh, my God, everyone's going to think I'm stealing this work from you. Like, I'm trying to take credit for your work. Right. So to Leah's point, his first thought, and I'm not trying to be critical of him, he's a close friend and, and the story does end well. But his first thought about how this impacts his own position. Right. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I get that. But I need you to just swallow that because people need to see a man leading this. If I speak to it, it'll be me speaking. A couple other women will jump on and it'll just get passed and kind of move along. If it's you, it opens up room. And so what ended up happening, he moved it. Every single counselor spoke to it. The mayor didn't quite cry, but got pretty teary talking about some of the experiences he saw his daughters and former wife deal with. Um, and then the other men started talking about the woman in their life. So it created the space that otherwise would never have been there um, for quite a catalytic change. Pretty much everyone was in tears by the end of it. Um, so I think if you're on a union, if you're on a board, if you're run an organ, I mean, I talked about the power I had in Vancouver. Part of that was you know, I worked my ass off and was pretty effective at moving things forward. But I also had a ton of people in unions, at nonprofits, in business, who would invite me to come and speak at their events to give me a stage to show that it was okay to put a woman on a stage, even a ethnically ambiguous woman who, like, you know, I never went to university, I had this sort of like, you know, background that doesn't often get into um, political leadership, they wanted to show that it's okay, right? So you can kind of normalize this behavior. Well, it's interesting because you all have sort of described a lot of burden that you're carrying in, in trying to change the political system inch by inch, which obviously we all appreciate. But I wonder one argument that comes up time and time again, Peggy, is, you know, if we change the political system, if we have electoral reform, if we get proportional representation or ranked ballots or, or whatever else, then the problem will be solved almost automatically. Is that true? No. <laughs> no, I, I'm a big fan of mixed proportional representation. I know you just had a whole show on this plug for the backbench, but I, I am a big fan. It is a system that most democracies in the world use, uh, but it's not automatic that that system will increase the representation of women. 30 years or more ago, the UN set a goal of 30% women. So many countries with proportional representation set a goal of 30%, which seemed to them become a ceiling for women's representation. But now we know two things. One, that again, just having women there, if they're not feminists, if they don't really believe in transforming the structures, you're not gonna change anything. And also that 30% isn't enough. You need parity. 
because these structures are so fossilized. I mean, our country, you know, we've had our political system since the formation of the country in 1867, but it precedes that, of course, by many, many years. So this is a structure that was designed to be elitist and and hierarchical and exclusive. And I think that broadening it out to proportional representation has, if it's a mixed member, so you keep your local representative, plus, you know, if you vote for the Green Party across the country, you actually those votes count. And if you're, uh, I don't know, God forbid, a federal new Democrat in Northern Alberta, you can actually, you know, have your vote count. If you're a conservative in downtown Toronto, you can have your vote count. So I think those things matter, but PR alone isn't enough. Parties have to change. I already talked about that. And I think, you know, these stereotypes about who is a good leader, who's strong enough to take the top position, for example, as a leader, who's the capable one, who do we want representing us, and not to have to face all those stereotypes, the double bind of being angry and bitchy if you are firm and tough or smiley and too feminine and weak if if you're too feminine. So allowing women to be women um, and to do the kind of good that I think many of us want to do, and not only women, but I think that women maybe disproportionately understand the importance of social programs because we tend to use them more. Um, But, you know, whether it's Indigenous issues, I mean, I hear Leah in the House uh, speaking up often about missing and murdered Indigenous women, about issues of violence, about First Nations rights. If she's not there, who's going to do that? Uh, It should be everyone. But the fact that she's there and makes it a priority, um, it shouldn't all be on her, but she doesn't let the government off the hook. So I just think PR alone doesn't do it, but we need to beef up the numbers and to have power. I have to wrap up, but I wonder if I could set like a hypothetical question or a hypothetical future for you all to consider, you know, looking at the political landscape right now, there is a possibility that in the next federal election, we may have a female leadership candidate, right? Like say Justin Trudeau in this future resigns, Christia Freeland, who is the front runner, is nominated to be the liberal leader. That's a female Hopefully Ontario NDP might might do that in Ontario and have a female and other provinces will also follow suit and, and have more female leaders. What do we do to make sure they're not one and done cases? What do we do to make sure that they are the start of a tidal wave of a more representative Canadian political system? I think we can speak to the struggles that women have, particularly women with intersectionalities of diverse kinds. But I think maybe we need to speak more about our strength and resiliency and power. Uh, I'll give you an example very quickly. When people refer to Indigenous women, they often call us Indigenous women and other vulnerable populations. So I corrected, you know, politely. I said, you know, when you use the word vulnerable, it's very stigmatizing. I actually think of kind of powerful And they were like, wow, didn't think about that before. And I share that because we are power. We are 
power because we are in places where we are never should have been, continue to be excluded from, yet we still find ourselves in these places fighting for a better world. And I think we need to focus the discussion on that. That's a life lesson just for being a woman anywhere, not just politics. We are power. (laughs) We are power. And uh, I'm happy to be who I am, where I am, kicking down the walls for other people so that they can just live their power in these places that have tried to exclude us. Andrea, very quickly, what, what would you like to see in this hypothetical future of more female leaders? Yeah, and I think one and done. I mean, we went through a cycle, Kathleen, mm-hmm. Quinn, Clark, like we had a few, right? Um, and then they're gone and the family portrait looks pretty homogenous these days across the premiers. I, I've seen it in the comments and the questions. So people get the sense all three of us worked very, very, very hard in public office. So I think if you're asking her, this theoretical future premier or prime minister, to be the one who is able to both do the job, having to do it three times better to be there at all, and then also build the enduring movement, that's not going to happen. So she's going to have to work three times harder, guarantee you. Like, it's definitely not even twice as hard. It's three. I had to work three times harder than the current mayor just to be a credible counselor, right? Because of the deficits we were bringing into it. Um, So how are you going to help? How are you going to show up? I can't tell you how many times people would say to me, oh my God, you're so busy. Do you have 10 minutes for a phone call? And it's like, look, if you understand one, then you must understand the best thing you could do for me is let me go for the run or like, don't make me feel guilty about this time that I need to take to be able to have the energy to be as busy as we are. And I think the last thing we do, and I know this is calling out, but I feel like it's important. One of the folks in the comments referred to Minister Freeland as a Nazi. um, And I think we have to call that out. If you're going to equate a woman um, to someone who perpetrated a genocide, why would she run for office? Like if we don't stand up for her, and I'm not a liberal, I'm not, that's not my political home at all. But if I don't stand up for her, who is going to stand up for her, right? And I think we have to do that and show up in that way for each other, even when we might be on the other side of issues. Your comment about, you know, people coming to you and saying, you're so busy, resonates very, very hard right now. Um, Peggy, last word to you. In this hypothetical future of more female leaders, what do we want to see? Well, I I want to start by picking up on Andrea's last point about standing up for each other. You know, I remember being in the house and some guy would make like a dumb comment. He he didn't even know how sexist he was being. And I would look across the aisle at Michelle Rempel and she would do this colossal eyeball roll and we would catch each other's eye. And, you know, I mean, we would disagree on most issues, but we could still go out for a beer, a glass of wine. We could chat. We could catch each other's eye. And that was really important. And so standing up for other women, I think, is important so that it's not just Catherine McKenna, who's dealing with misogynist slurs on her constituency wall, but how powerful it would have been if a multi-party group of MPs, especially women, had come and demonstrated in support of her at her constituency office. So I think just being a bit kinder to each other 
is important. And, and I think having, having that strength of other support, you know, there was an inter- there is an interview in my book with Asma Malik, who is a hijab wearing Muslim woman who faced incredible Islamophobia when she was running for school trustee and to the point where it was a security threat for her. But the community, not just her campaign team, but the community really rallied around her to denounce that Islamophobia. And, you know, for all of us, I think there's a responsibility to denounce hate and sexism or racism, any other kind of hate. But just lastly, and talking about, you know, Leah's comments about grounding ourselves, I too would run every morning because it's the only way I could keep same. Uh, I'm a terrible cook, though. But um, what Asma said in her campaigns, and this really struck me and I think is so powerful, is about keeping fun alive. Uh, that whatever you're doing in politics is not is just politics, is not life or death. Let's keep fun alive and enjoy as we go through this. Because I can I can say with experience that you're there for a brief period and then it's someone else's turn or it should be. So have fun, help others have fun while you're there. And hopefully when we have a woman prime minister, she'll remember to share some laughs. And we have a woman prime minister again, because there's only been one. (laughs) Again, we haven't elected a woman prime minister. That's true. All right, on that note, let's adjourn. That's the backbench. A reminder, we are on a bi-weekly schedule right now. We have an interview coming up that we're really, really excited about for our next episode. So please stay tuned for that. Peggy Nash's book is called Women Winning Office, An Activist's Guide to Getting Elected. Thanks again to Between the Lines for inviting me to host that event and sharing the audio with us. You can email me, Fatma, at canadaland.com. We're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. You can also find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton with additional production by Noor Azriye and Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.